Good morning, Cross Point. Good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. Children, you can be released for Children's Church. And then if the rest of you would turn with me this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So that's 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as you turn there, I want to follow up a little bit from last Sunday. Last Sunday was our Vision Sunday. If you were not here, I would encourage you to, to go back to listen to that message as we laid out where God's leading us in the coming years, and particularly in this year of what you've heard mentioned with the story of God. Now, one thing I did last week is I kind of said, here's where we were, here's where we are, and and here's where we're going. And some of you guys picked up when I said, this is who we are. You noticed a number on there that raised some questions that I didn't have time to talk about last week because I felt like I was going long. And that was, it said we had five elders. And then some were like, we have five elders. Who are they? That would be helpful to know. That's what I was planning to make an announcement on last week. and la- So that's what I want to talk about now to kind of update you. Who are they? What are they? Elders at Cross Point are described in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, the characteristics of an elder. An elder, is it's the same word for pastor, for overseer. It means a shepherd that they are men who are established in the church to oversee and to care for and to shepherd the church family. That means knowing the church family corporately as a congregation and also individually. It means feeding the congregation, nourishing you with the nourishment from God's word. It means leading God's people into the plans and purposes that God has for us as a church, and it's protecting the people. It's protecting against sin from within, from outside, from from false doctrine, from coming inside the church. These are the responsibilities of the elders. And we believe in a plurality of elders, meaning like you'll see up on the screen, we're going to go through one by one. Myself, I am one of the five elders. This is not a pastor-led church. This is not about me, my personality, my vision for the church. No, like I am one of a team, and when it comes to leading and shepherding the church, I am one of many. That's how God designed it, intended it. We also have A.D. Daisley, who he did the pastoral prayer last week. He's been an elder with us now for over five years, and he has been on sabbatical last year since his dad passed away. He's going to continue to be on sabbatical through this year. Now, a sabbatical, it's a time to step back from the regular responsibilities of ministry to be able to step into a season of refreshing and renewal. A a lot of churches have a term, like an elder might lead for three years and then take a year off. We don't have terms, but we also want to be mindful that there are seasons and times when it's appropriate to take a step back so that they can step back in. That's what AD is going to be doing. You're still going to see him around here. He's still participating. He's excited to be on the worship team, but he's taking a step back from the responsibilities of elder for this year. And then we'll revisit that the end of this year. We also have uh, Anthony Legrand, who was leading worship. He is one of our elders. He's the third. He, He came on board last year and joining the team and has been serving as an elder. Last year, we also introduced Gene Coleman, who did the pastoral prayer today. He's an elder candidate. So the way our process works is because an elder is an important role in the church. This is something that God has established within the church to to lead. We take that seriously. And so our process typically has three steps, where a gentleman, like after the interview, will come alongside and will run with the elders for a short time, for uh, several months. And that's kind of making sure that we have theological alignment. Like, how does this work itself out practically? Does the ministry philosophy, does that work together? What about personalities, time commitments? How's that impacting the family? And it's a time to test until then the second step is we present them to you. And we say, here's a gentleman who's been running with us, who's now a candidate. We want you to watch, to observe their life, their doctrine closely, to see, is this person fit and called to to lead us as a shepherd here at Crosspoint? That's what Gene has been doing for these months. And the elders now in the third step want to wholeheartedly recommend him to be installed as a full elder. What we would like to do in the way that process works 
is we want to do that on February 4th, the first Sunday in February. But we want to hear your voice. He's a shepherd here among this body. And so we're going to be sending out a text message with a link for you to respond. You've heard him preach. You've been watching him. Do you affirm with what the elders are recommending before we install him? And so we want to hear from you in that. So he's the fourth. And then the fifth is Stephen Bean, who we want to present to you today as an elder candidate. So he's someone who has been walking with us the past several months, and now the elders want to say he's a gentleman who we believe is gifted and called to come alongside. He's a candidate. This is a time of testing, a time where we want you to observe, to watch. You'll hear him share on Sunday mornings as well to then take that step. So that's where we're at. So in that text message to our partners, we want to hear your voice, and it's going to have for you to give feedback on both Gene and Stephen. And all of that to say that's how we got to five. <laughs> so that's where we're at. That was my intent last week, but I felt like I was getting long-winded, so I shut it down, but that left confusion. So I want to begin today by, let's pray for these gentlemen. I am so, so grateful for their wisdom. I'm grateful to co-labor with them that it's not just, this is not a pastor-led church. This is an elder-led church. There's a plurality of men. There is wisdom that comes in the counsel of many. And I'm so grateful for their wisdom and their counsel that has even spoken into what we're walking into this year has been formed by many men and many hours of prayer and reflection. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into the passage today. Lord, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you give us clear instruction for, for how the church is intended to be led. The, the, the characteristics that an elder is, is called to have, not because they're special or good in themselves, Lord, but because it is evident how your spirit has transformed them. Lord, men that are humbled before you, who lead without striving for power, but by laying down their lives. Men who who serve and love and shepherd with, with sacrifice and care. Lord, I'm so grateful for these men, and I pray that together as a congregation, would you give unity among us as a body of who it is that you're raising up to fulfill this role. Lord, we need your leadership. We need your wisdom. Even as elders, we are under-shepherds of the one good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, would you lead, would you guide as we submit and surrender to you? And in Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday felt like a big Sunday for me. Like, it was this culmination of years of, of learning and resources and convictions that seemed to converge into where God's leading us in this coming year and the future. And what I want to do is we prepare to launch that starting February 4th, it feels to me like we're packing for a journey, right? Like, like what we're loading up. And, and the image that came to my mind was something our family did in October of 2015. We decided it would be a good idea for vacation to hike part of the Appalachian Trail with five kids. So you'll see <laughs> this picture up on the screen. I think this was, was day two. We had never done anything like this. And so we, we, we planned and we prepared what we had, the guidebook on the, the Appalachian Trail. We're like, okay, here's how much we're going to hike each day. We packed maps and water filters and clothing and food for, for 10 days. We, we loaded up our packs and we drove up to, to Georgia where the Appalachian Trail either begins or ends, depending on which way you look at it. And we set off, right? Within minutes minute there was tears like i want to go back whose idea was this terrible idea and onward we forged right and we we kept walking and i didn't quite plan it out i think my pack it was like over 60 pounds that carrying like your thighs start burning and aching and then what we thought we were going to be able to walk we couldn't and so we didn't make it up and over the next mountain. So we had to stay put one night, but that meant there was no stream. There was no water. 
there was crying again that night. And then there was celebration. Because about halfway through, and you'll see this on the second picture, we decided to be done with the hike. And to go home and just watch a whole bunch of movies and not tell anybody. So that's what we did. You can see one of my particular children who's like, yes, right? I won't say her name, but you can see her there. We now have a magnet on our fridge that says, I love not camping, right? So why do I share all that? What do we need to pack for in the journey that we're preparing to take this year in discipleship? Like, what do we need to pack? We packed way too much. I did not need to be carrying that much weight. There are things we did not need. And I think the same thing can happen as we start on this path and on this journey of discipleship. We can look and search the internet and there's all sorts of things. There's books and, and things that, that glitter and things that look pretty. And oh, if I had this and if I did this and all of a sudden we burden ourselves with so much stuff, we go to walk the path of discipleship and we don't know how, like we get exhausted and we're like, mm, Maybe not. Let's not do that. Let's find something that's easier. And so I shared about three things that I believe three foundational things that we need in the journey. What's essential for us to succeed in the journey of discipleship? And if you remember, I said God's word was number one. We need God's word. We need a dependence on God's spirit and then together with God's people. These three things, that's what's essential. And so what I want to do over these next three, three weeks leading into the story of God is look at each one of these, beginning with God's word. Why is it essential? Why is it that we may forget and leave behind all sorts of things, but if we leave behind God's word, discipleship will not happen. It is absolutely essential. And so I want to begin by looking at four convictions around God's word to help establish in our minds and in our hearts why we're even doing the story of God. That's going to take us to see Christ from Genesis to Revelation. Why would we even do that? What good will it do? So the first conviction, if you will, look with me. I ask you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and then look with me at verse 16. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture, is, it literally means it is God-breathed. It comes from the, the, the breath of God. Like, just consider this for a moment, what that means. That, that the words here originated in the mind of the one true God. His heart, his afflictions being expressed through his word, the, the very breath of God is what we have here. In the doctrine of the authority of God's word and its inerrancy, which means we believe that, that, that the scripture is without error. Why? Because the doctrine of what we believe about the scripture is rooted, it's founded on the doctrine of God. Who is God? Does he have error? Does he have mistakes? No, God himself is perfect in every way. He is true and trustworthy and without fault and without error. Therefore, the words that come from the mouth of God are also true and without fault and without error that they are breathed out by God. Now you might say like, but okay, but aren't they written down? Weren't they transmitted by human authors? Like, aren't people inherently sinful? Doesn't that mean that maybe some of their sin, maybe some of their wrong thoughts corrupted the scriptures and God's word got twisted as the authors wrote them down? I mean, the Bible has 40 different authors. There are 66 books, 40 different authors from different backgrounds, farmers, shepherds, fishermen, prophet, written over the course of 1,500 years. 
And yet, it's evident that it has one message. There's no contradiction between them. There's ultimately one author. There's one message that God ensured the perfect communication of his word is what we believe. This is what it says in 2 Peter chapter 1. It says, above all, above all, I want you to know this, right? No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. It's not like, oh, the authors of the Bible, they just thought this was a good idea at this particular cultural time. We should just kind of take that with a grain of salt because this is just what they thought, these old people in old times. But it says no scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. It's not just that these men wanted to say this and were like, wow, that was really wise. Let us study these wise words of these men from the past. No. It says men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that the scripture is inspired. It is breathed out by God. He carried along the human authors without violating their personality. He superintended, oversaw, so that what is communicated is fully, ultimately, God's Word. God's Word. The the one true God who said, let there be light, and there was light, has spoken. We have his word here. In a world that what do we hear over and over again? Oh, like it's fake news. Oh, it's a deep fake. Oh, it was created by artificial intelligence. Oh, like it's a media outlet that has its own perspective and they're trying to like manipulate the public. Like there is such an intense mistrust of all authority, all motivation that it wants to place ourselves as the ultimate authority because we can't trust anything else. And then we have God's word, true and trustworthy, without error, that says it stands as the ultimate authority, that we can know that it's true, that we can know that it hasn't been altered. And the second conviction is this, that the scripture, the Bible, it's useful. It's not just that it's breathed out by God, that it's God's word, but it's, it's useful. It's profitable to us. Look at what it says in 16 again. All scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable. There's a profit to it, meaning what you invest, you will get more out of it than what you just put into it. Like there's a profit. There is a good for your life. There is a benefit to you. There is life and flourishing as we surrender and submit to God's authority through his word. And then it uses these these four phrases. All scripture, it's profitable for one, teaching, two, rebuking, three, correcting, and four, training in righteousness. These four things. Now, because I'm such a visual person, at some point, years ago, and I have no idea when, and I have no idea where I got this, so I can't reference where I got it from. There's kind of this picture that comes in my mind when I see this. So imagine you're walking this path, right? And it says God's word, it's profitable, it's useful to us in teaching, in the way that we should go. Walk the the path of righteousness. This is what leads to life. This is what leads to flourishing, right? Stay on this, this path. And that's where wisdom is. Listen to the voice of wisdom. But then what happens? We're like, but yeah, but look at that. What if I go this way? And and we start to go off, right? We start to try to make our own path and we try to disregard what this says and what it's teaching. And what happens? We get rebuked. Like when I was driving another time, I was driving by myself through Georgia and I saw the speed limit sign with those numbers on it, but I felt like my car wanted to go at a different speed. And so I'm like, yeah, let's do that. And then you see the red and blue lights behind you say, no, you can't do that. That's not allowed. There's a rebuke that comes, right? Thankfully, I got a warning instead of a ticket. And then there's the correction that comes. How about you follow the number on the speed limit sign, right? That's going to keep everybody safe. 
do that. So it's like, okay. So then there's this correction that happens. It's like those detour signs when you get off and like you, you, you try to go off and it's like, this is follow these signs and this is going to get you back onto the main road. So you get off track, you start going your own way. There's a rebuke. Then there's correction that happens. It's bringing you back onto the path that God has for us. And then it says training and righteousness. So we can continue on that path that God has. The scripture is useful to us in all those things. It's beneficial to us in the way that that leads to life and flourishing. And it's understandable. Think about this. God's word is understandable. You can pick this up and read it. And thankfully, because the original manuscripts have been translated into English, but you don't need like one of these decoder rings. Right? Like, well, if you have this mathematical formula and you have this special other book, then you can decipher God's word. And then you'll get to some secret hidden meaning. No. God's word, it's plain. It's, it's clear. The, the apostle Paul said to a young pastor once, like, rightfully handling God's word. Rightfully handling it. Not just Treating it however you want, not just using it to prove your own opinion, but allowing it to have authority over us. God's word is understandable. Now think about this. The fourth point is this. God's word is effective. I'm going to read a list of passages. I don't have them all up on the screen, and this is an incomplete list. But I want you to consider the effectiveness of God's word, what it does in our life. That Romans 10, 17 says that it initiates our faith. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. The message of Christ produces faith. God's word initiates faith. How else will they hear unless someone preaches? How will they preach unless someone goes? How beautiful are the feet of those who go to preach the good news? Like, how do we hear of Christ unless it is through his word and his revelation to us of what is true about Christ? We can see the invisible qualities of God, it says, and In Romans 1, when we look outside and we look at nature, there are aspects generally that we can see and know that God exists. But to know specifically the person and work of Jesus Christ is revealed through his word. This is why when when the Apostle Paul preached, he said, look, just as scripture said, he died, he was buried for three days, just as the scripture says. He rose again, just as the scripture said. Like, The Word of God tells us specifically about God, and this initiates faith. It gives new spiritual life. God's Word gives life because you have been born again, it says in 1 Peter 1. Not of perishable, but of imperishable, meaning not of just man-made substance, but of what is eternal through the living and enduring Word of God. This is what we have. Like, this is what we hold in our hands, the living, enduring Word of God. It is alive and and active. It is eternal. It is not just, we might talk about the historical context, but there is something alive and eternal about it that applies today. It helps us grow up. Like, it matures us. It sanctifies us. First Peter 2, it says, like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation. It's such a beautiful phase when we think you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Now grow up, mature into that salvation. And this is what God's word does. It's what it produces in us. It searches and it convicts our hearts. Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and effective. And it's sharper than any 
double-edged sword. It penetrates as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It searches. It's reading us. See, we don't just read the scripture and, and be in authority over it, like, I like this and I don't like this, and, well, I'm not going to ignore that part. No, it's, it's alive. It's reading us. It's searching us as we're reading it. It liberates. John 8, then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It renews and enlightens. The instruction of the Lord is, it's perfect. It's perfect. Renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. Making the inexperienced wise. Now here's the thing. There's a part of me, even as I look out, I'm like, some are just going to be like, yeah, it's the Bible. But if, if you watched an infomercial, if you're like, this infomercial comes in, or maybe it's a Facebook ad, and it's like, hey, if you take one pill once a day, take it in the morning, 30 minutes before you eat, and, and when you take it, you're going to experience this renewal of, of energy in life. It's going to actually like infuse hope into you. You're, you're going to mature and become wise. You're going to learn things. It's going to like activate cells in your brain and, and, and you're going to become wise and, and see things different. You're going to mature and, and, and grow up into all that God has for you. Addictions that you have are going to fall away. Things that entrap you, you're going to walk in freedom. Just take this one pill. You'll have life and joy. You'd be like, sign me up. Where do I pay? Pay the monthly fee. But when it's like, well, this is what the scripture does in our life. It's profitable. We walk with God and his word. It's like, and I have the pill. There's this indifference that comes with it. But this is what the scripture is inviting us into, to walk with God. But when we looked at Luke 24 last week with the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it was saying, remember that they were arguing, they were discussing, what does all this mean? And then once they realized that they had been talking with Jesus, it said their hearts burned. Like, didn't our hearts burn as he spoke? Didn't our hearts burn as he was explaining the scriptures to us. And then they, they ran to, to tell others. That's my prayer, is that there is a hunger and thirst, not just to check off a to-do list of reading the Bible. That is not the goal. The goal is to walk with Christ, to know him, to, to hear his voice, to, to sit with him as we would sit with someone around the dinner table, to, to hear his heart, to in an unhurried presence make eye contact with him, asking questions and listening. Because God's word is trustworthy. It's true. But can we know this? This was a question I asked. I grew up in a Christian home. And so there was a part of me, I kind of went through it, but I went through this stage of my life where I'm like, well, is this really true? Like everything I've been taught comes from God's word. And, and the reality is, how do I know that it's trustworthy? Like, maybe it's not. Like, if I'm going to base my whole life on this, I'm not going to take somebody else's word for it. So I went in and there were some questions I had before I stepped into a faith that I called my own. And the first was, is the Bible reliable? I don't have time to go into all the historicity and reliability of Scripture, but I do want to give you a snapshot. And there's one resource, there's many resources, I can give you others if you want. That one is by uh, Greg Gilbert called Why Trust the Bible. If you have questions, should I trust the Bible? 
I have questions about it. How did we get it? Some of the titles are, were things lost in translation? Isn't this just copies of copies of copies of copies? Isn't this just a telephone game? And what we have today is not what was in the original manuscripts. How did we even get these books in the Bible? Like, why aren't there other books? Maybe we need those. But there are details to the historicity and reliability of Scripture that became absolutely compelling to me. Now, I do have next week, I tried to get them in time. It's a little pamphlet of this book that's coming next week that I just want to be able to have on the back table if you want one. But let me just give you a snapshot of what was helpful for me. When you look at at ancient documents, there's a few things that you look at. One is how many documents are there and what's the length of time from the original manuscript to the first copy that we have. So to put this in perspective, Plato, there's 210 copies now. It used to only be seven. Now it's 210. There's 210 copies of the writings of Plato. The earliest copy we have from the original was 1,200 years after the death of Plato. And these writings are attributed to him that it's been recorded, and that's what we have. Now, the second most copies of an ancient document is Homer's Iliad. There's 1,757 copies. That's how many copies we have that then they compare with one another. And the earliest copy of that is 400 years after Homer. That kind of puts it in perspective. So that's the second most. So what about Scripture? When it comes to to the New Testament, how many manuscripts are there? How far was it from the time of the original? For the New Testament, there's 25,000 manuscripts within 25 to 100 years of the original. I just want that to set in. In second place is 1,700. The New Testament is over 25,000. We can know, we can compare what we have here to what we have in the earliest manuscripts and say, is that the same or isn't it? And and then you'll see some, they'll say, but in all of these kind of speak within one another with only a 1% variance. And you're like, okay, a 1% variance. What does that mean? Like I heard that there are thousands upon thousands of errors and differences between the documents. Here's what I want you to understand when you hear that of what's happening. Imagine we're a hundred people here and I put a verse up on the screen and I have each of you write it down exactly how you see it. Okay. Now imagine one person here forgets to dot the I. Maybe the pen doesn't work. Maybe you forgot it. But that letter does not have a dot over it. That means that there are a hundred errors is how that's counted when you get into what's called textual criticism. Is there a difference? Because that one document differs from 99 and those 99 differ from this one. So that's a hundred errors. Now somebody else forgot to put a period at the end of the, the sentence. So now you have 200 errors. We all wrote the exact same thing. But now if someone were to tell you, yeah, everybody wrote the same verse, but did you know there's 200 errors? You could be, well, I can't trust what anyone said. Do you see what I mean? I would just encourage you to take a little bit of investigation and study that if you're questioning the reliability of Scripture, It is worthwhile digging into this. I have other resources I can point you in the direction of. For me, these were questions I had. If I'm going to base my life before I ever became a preacher on what God's Word says, I needed to know that it was reliable. I came to that conviction myself. I would encourage you, ask the hard questions. Not afraid of truth. But but there is helpful information out there. And there is a lot of things where people twist facts to try to create doubt and to undermine faith. So I want to end with this. 
how do we study the Bible? We're hitting into a season where we're looking at from Genesis to Revelation to see Jesus in all of Scripture. And I want to give us a tool to use in how to study Scripture. That the purpose of reading, and what you'll see, let's say, like for the first week, you're going to see in these journals that are going to be available next week. We're going to have them back at the Connect table for you to pick up. But there's just some things I want to orient us to. It's going to have a place here for a passage to read. The purpose of this in, in, in of reading is not to just mark off a checklist. The purpose is to meet with God. That if these are the are inspired by God, if these words have been breathed out by God to hear his voice, to know him, I want us to, to imagine this as a as a divine conversation. I'm not just sitting down and I have to like, I can get very um, motivated by a to-do list and checking off boxes. And I've, I've done this for the day. I don't want our time with God to be a task to mark off any more than I put dinner with my wife on a to-do list to just check off. Did that next. Like that would be insanity. But sometimes we treat God like that. I did my duty. but to sit and to talk with him. So what I've done is I've created a, an acronym that's taken from others. That This is a culmination. I did not come up with all of this. I gave it the acronym of ROAD, is what the acronym stands for, and it's these four things. The reason I did that is there's some elements I wanted to tweak of other things that I was familiar with. There is no, like, this is not the only way to do it, okay? The reason why I chose ROAD is because last week, when we were talking about the Emmaus disciples and it said that they were walking along the road to get home to Emmaus and Jesus met them there while they're discussing and arguing, I want it to be in our minds every time we come across this to kind of say, as we walk the road of life, we're meeting with Jesus. We're walking with him. That's the imagery I want to come to mind. And so this acronym has, has four parts. The first is to read. Easy enough, right? There's a passage. You're going to see the passage here. But before just reading, I want to encourage you, and, and all of this is going to be in here. So when you, get, uh, when you pick this up next week or the week after, everything I'm about to say is described here, and then there's a sample on the right. So if you're like, I don't remember anything you said last week, that's okay. It's fine. Just get the general idea today. Specifics will come in time. So the first idea is to, to pray. These are spiritual words. We're talking about this next week. There needs to be a dependence on the Holy Spirit to discern and understand spiritual words. We need the Spirit of God to give us understanding. I'm not just coming with my intellect. I'm not coming with a degree to understand. Apart from the Holy Spirit, my eyes are blinded to the things that come from God. This is for anyone to sit down and say, Lord, would you open the eyes of my heart to see the truth of your word? Not what I want to see, but what you're saying. That's what I need. That's what I long for. And then to listen, to slowly, repeatedly, in an unhurried manner, not just read it quickly, but to take your time to let the word soak in, reread it multiple times if necessary, because you're listening. Have you ever talked to somebody and they're not making eye contact and they're doing something else? And you're like, are you even listening to me? Like you're, you're typing on the computer, you're watching a show and you're talking to me, but don't do that to God. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm doing something else, but I'm reading this and okay, done checked off and on to the next thing. Like there's this unhurried present with God. One thing that helps me in this and that I want to encourage you is to journal as you read. Now I know some are going to say, I don't journal. I'm not a journaler. That's not my thing. Hear me out. Okay. Just for a little bit. After you have the reading, 
here's the way that it's set up. You have what you're reading, and then it's two blank pages. This is our discipleship structure. When I say it's God's word, God's spirit, and together, this is what I mean. When I say journal, I'm not just saying, hey, read the passage and write down, well, this morning I had an omelet for breakfast, and I read this passage, and it was pretty good, like this stood out to me. Like, I'm not talking about complete sentences, always. If that's your thing, go for it. But for me, it's kind of like I take notes. I take notes, like I took notes in, in college, right? Like, you take notes as the professor's talking. I'm writing down what they said. I also take notes if I'm on the phone with you. The reason why I do that is because you might say something I want to come back to in our conversation. Oh, yeah, they said this. I want to remember what it is you said. I want to be present as you're speaking. And it helps me in the conversation to refer back to and see the flow of the conversation. So I have notes written. My desktop is a whiteboard. I have scraps of paper everywhere. Like I write on anything that's around me. I journal the same way. It's not complete sentences. I make a bullet point. And so I typically, I'm sitting there and and I have my Bible and I have my journal and I'm reading and I'm writing. And it's bullet points. It might be a word. It might be a phrase. If it's something that I think is important, I might circle it. And I'm interacting with the word as I'm reading it. That's what I mean by journaling. And so some people have sometimes been put off by like, oh, I, I just, I don't journal. Can I ask you to try it? <laughs> just try that. Don't, don't think everything has to be a full sentence. But write as you're listening, as you would take notes in a meeting or in school to interact with the word. So that's read. All of that's part of reading. The O is to observe. Ask questions. When I was, when I was getting my degree, I remember a professor was like, okay, ask 25 questions of this passage. So in class, we wrote 25 questions. What does this word mean? What does that mean? What does this mean? And he's like, okay, go home and write 50 more. Like, then all of a sudden you're like, I thought I understood this. But now there's a lot of questions I have because I did come up with 50 more. And then we came up with more in class. Observe. Treat it like you're an explorer and you have a treasure map. That's how the scripture talks about Christ. He is the great treasure, the, the pearl of great price. He's worth selling everything for to obtain Christ. And we have his word here. And, and our goal is to discover him. So observe, ask questions. Who's, who's writing this? When was it written? What was the occasion that it was written? Who's he writing to? Investigate. What's, what's the big idea in, in narratives, which we're going to be in? There's a goal, there's conflict, and there's resolution. Follow that rhythm. You're going to be hearing that a lot <clears throat> in this coming season. That's why there's a loop on the cover. It's because there's a goal. There's this conflict that happens, and there's this way that it's resolved. This happens again and again through Scripture, and then we're going to see there's one overarching narrative through the whole thing. Ask questions. Write them down. Doesn't mean you're going to have all the answers. I've started using two pens just because I like different colors. So, like, I'm taking my notes, and now I got, like, a special red pen for Christmas. (laughs) Sorry, I could go off on that for a second. Not going to do it. So that the color, I'm like, here's a question. I put a question mark by it. What does that mean? That, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I have a lot of questions. I start with a lot of questions. Questions aren't bad. Don't feel bad if you come and you're like, what does this mean? What does that mean? I didn't understand how this connects. Questions are awesome. They're great. It's showing that you're meditating and you're thinking on it and there's truth to be found. So ask questions as you read. The A is apply. Receiving and responding to God's word. Here's the thing. This is not an intellectual exercise. The reason why we are going through the story of God is not so you walk out at the end of the year and you know more stories than you know today. That is not the goal. The goal is that the truth of these stories would be received and would transform our lives. The the disciples who heard Jesus on that road to Emmaus, they were changed. Their hearts burned. There were 
questions like, okay, now what? How do I need to believe different? How does my attitude need to be different? How does, how do my actions need to change? And, and here's the thing I want to encourage you. And I can only kind of say for myself, for whatever reason that I'm still examining, whenever I come to scripture, I have this tendency to believe that it's going to be condemnation. It's going to be, you're not believing strong enough, you're not doing enough, your attitude's wrong, your action's wrong, and it's going to tell me how I need to do better. It is, like, that's what happened. And here's what I've discovered, though, that that's not what I receive. That's what I expect. But what I receive is God declaring who he is. And it's that idea of like growing up into your salvation. That phrase, do you remember with like why the scripture is effective and profitable? That all of a sudden I realize who I am in Christ. And it's this affirming aspect of this is who Christ is. And yes, there's this challenge to grow up into that, but it's not to be something I'm not, but to be something that God has already declared me to be. And it leads to like life and it, and it lifts me, and, and I'm surprised every single time. I don't, like, you would think I wouldn't be surprised anymore, but I'm always can be, like, hard on myself and perfectionistic, and, and I feel like God and his loving kindness is like, do you, do you taste the sweetness of mercy? It is not bitter. It is sweet. It lifts, and it calls, and it renews, and it leads to life. That's the reality. And so when I talk about applying scripture, what's your expectation? Because to be honest, I don't think I'm alone in thinking it's only going to be condemnation to do better. That's not the gospel. It is a declaration of who Christ is. The D, so we have read, observe, apply, and then the D is to disciple. I think too often study Bible methods are focused only on us as an individual. It's about me, me, me. How do I do better? What do I know? Like, let there be light. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> I have a feeling the child pressed a button back there. But how do we share this with others? Like, it changes us. Like, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, do you remember? Like, I keep coming back to this again and again. Like they, they had just walked seven miles to get home. They're tired. They tell Jesus, don't keep going. Have dinner with us. It's late. It's dark. But then they realize, like, oh my goodness, this was Christ. Our hearts burned. So what do they decide to do? Let's go for a seven-mile jog back to Jerusalem through the danger and darkness of night to go tell them. Like, this is awesome. There is an incompleteness in our joy until it is shared with others, is what Lewis famously has said. Like, have you ever had this? Like, you see something beautiful, and it's like, who can I tell? I saw this awesome thing, and it's like, I want to share this with somebody else. The same thing should be true when it comes to God's Word. Like, look at what I read. Can I share with you? Like, is it a spouse? Is it a child, a coworker, a family member? And here's what I found so often, is after, like, I have my time, and I, I spent that w with God, and then... I'm out and I'm talking with people and, and so often it's like, oh, that reminds me of something I read. Like, you know, just this morning I read this in God's word and it was challenging or it was encouraging and it takes like 30 seconds, but I have something of truth to share. That's what I want to encourage us to. Don't let, it's not just about you. But how might God use what he's showing you to be an encouragement or challenge to others? And this is what we're going to be doing in community groups. When we gather throughout the city, throughout the week, my desire is that each and every one of us are going through this, the reading together. I'm going to ask that you read the passage before I preach on it, that you've written your questions, you've walked with God on the, the road to discipleship together, and now we gather together as a community group, and it's going to be... Not what did Pastor Steve say, but we're going to read the text together and say, what did God cause to stand out? What questions do you have? Who did you share this with? 
How can we pray for one another? How can we pray for others? It's as simple as that. God's word, a dependence on his spirit, and walking together as believers. That God's word is clear, all scripture is breathed out by God. And it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. So let's walk with God together this coming year to meet with him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have spoken, that you have given us your word, and that it is clear, it is understandable, Lord, that, Lord, it renews the mind, it strengthens our hearts, that it instructs, that it corrects. Lord, I thank you for your loving care. Lord, let us not take it for granted. Sometimes it can seem so common. We have the Bible. But Lord, let the reality of its purpose in our lives bear fruit. Lord, this year, as, as we walk through From Genesis to Revelation, Lord, would you open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ throughout your word? Lord, help us to see you. Give us an unhurried presence as we meet with you. Give us ears to hear, hearts that perceive. Lord, lead us into obedience in our thoughts and in our actions. Lord, we surrender before you, asking for your way and your will to be done in our lives. And in Jesus' name, amen.